Well, let's turn in our Bibles together to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, we're beginning a new series in Paul's letter to the Romans, but we're going to set the context in two ways in this week and uh, next week. Uh, first of all, this week we're looking at the life of Paul. In other words, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, of course, and it's important for us to have a joint understanding of who this man was who wrote this letter. And so this morning, we are focused on Paul as a person, and I'm going to be telling his story in a way that will point to Christ, I hope, and his amazing grace. So Romans 1 and verse 1, you'll find it on page 939. And let's pray as we now begin to study God's Word together. Our Father God, your Word stands eternal, and it is a Word of love and light. And so we uh, pray this morning that uh, the love of Jesus and the light of Jesus will be shed in our hearts by His Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. So friends, Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, there are many different opinions that people have about the apostle Paul. Here's one by a famous author. He said of the apostle Paul that he was one of the most ambitious of men whose superstition was only equaled by his cunning, a much tortured much to be pitied man, an exceedingly unpleasant person, both to himself and to others. So was the Apostle Paul, according to Frederick Nietzsche. Yet, uh, when we actually study the uh, biblical and the historical record, the facts speak quite differently. And so the historian R. Allen, who uh, wrote uh, some years ago now, of course, the uh, missionary handbook, St. Paul's Missionary Methods and Ours, historian R. Allen instead described the Apostle Paul's work like this. In little more than 10 years, St. Paul established the church in four provinces of the empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Ten years. Before A.D. 47, there were no churches in these provinces. In A.D. 57, St. Paul could speak as if his work there was done and could plan extensive tours into the far west without anxiety lest the churches which he had founded might perish in his absence for want of his guidance and support. Indeed, they still remained into the 4th century. That's uh, quite a lot to get done in 10 years. And evidently as well, then, a lot of people at the time of the Apostle Paul were persuaded, contrary to the opinion of Nietzsche and others who view Paul as a bit of a bigot, uh, they were persuaded that Paul was the genuine article, a real messenger of the risen Christ. Now, Paul lived at least 66 generations ago, and we won't count up what that means, but it means something like your great-great-great-great-grandfather 66 times or so, you see. A long time ago. And yet he has a very contemporary interest, doesn't he? Uh, just recently, an Episcopalian bishop uh, in a sermon uh, this year described Paul and attacked uh, Paul as a bigot. And uh, it was uh, done in a sermon in what one listener called the worst sermon ever. 
Well, to be fair, though, Paul is the focus of debates about sexuality, gender, authority. And even most importantly, of course, the orthodoxy of the Christ presented in the Scriptures he wrote. Uh, Despite such attacks, however, Paul does not preach a different message from Jesus. I think the most helpful way to put this uh, was done by F.F. Bruce, who described the distinction like this. In the gospel accounts, the preacher, Jesus, becomes in the letters the preached one, also Jesus. Now, of course, part of the reason for a sermon like this on the life of Paul in the New Testament is to establish that Paul preaches the true Jesus, which he does. Our purpose, though, is also a a thoroughly practical point. And, of course, doctrine is always practical, and that, I hope, will be one of the side lessons of our studies in the letter to the Romans. It is always deeply practical, the doctrine of God. We must not say, I've had enough doctrine, I want practical things. No, doctrine is always practical if it is taught properly. And our purpose here is also then to make a thoroughly practical point that in Paul's life we see the power of grace, that amazing grace that we all so need. In fact, in my view, Paul thought of his life in precisely those terms. It is uh, recorded his life in more detail and in greater frequency than that of any other apostle, three times in Acts, at least twice in his letters, depending on how you count that, as a God-designed example of Christ's unlimited patience. Imagine saying that about yourself. I'm an example of just how patient God can be. Well, that is what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 15 to 17. He writes, we read it together earlier, you don't need to turn it up, we just read it. The saying is trustworthy and deserves a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy, here it is, for this reason. Why are there so many accounts of your life, Paul, in the, in the New Testament? For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who will believe for eternal life. So Paul's life is intended to be studied by us so that we might have an example of Christ's perfect patience, His all-surpassing patience for those who will believe. We might put it like this. Paul's life is designed to show us that God can save anyone and use anyone. Now, this is also the first in a new series on Paul's letter to the Romans. I've written an article describing why we're studying Romans called 56 Reasons Why We're Studying Romans, which is available if you want to email me, I could send you a copy. But I'm beginning with the life of Paul because it's important for us to understand, as I say, who wrote this letter. A God-designed example of Christ's unlimited patience for those who will believe. That's who's writing this letter. And see, this life of Paul then is going to be entirely, I trust, Christocentric, centered on Christ. Jesus. First Saul, then conversion, then apostle, then ending. First Saul. 
Well, this part of the story shows us that we are to count religious righteousness even as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, as Paul was born a Roman citizen, he probably had three names that Romans did. And the last of those three names, known as the cognomen, would have been personal to him and was probably Paulus or Paul. The other two names are unknown to us, uh, perhaps or most likely because Paul's life was first written by Luke, who was a Greco-Syrian, that is a Greek-Syrian from Antioch, his colleague, and Greeks found it impossible to understand Latin names. But as Paul was also a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, he had a Jewish name in honor of the most famous Benjamite, King Saul. So Saul came from a well-to-do family in Tarsus. We know they were fairly well-to-do because they met the property qualifications of citizenship in the Roman Empire, which were not inconsiderable. His father was likely a master tent maker. That is, he would have been a manufacturer, in our terms, of the cloth woven together from the long-haired goats of the region. The black tents of Tarsus covered that whole Asia Minor area, and he would have been at the center of that trade. Tarsus was a city avid in learning. It was what we might call a university city, I suppose. And Saul, early educated from the school attached to the Tarsus synagogue, in all likelihood, because he was a Hebrew, Pharisee. He would have been taught nothing but the Hebrew text of the law. He would have had to learn it by rote in a very strict fashion and have every syllable precise, even every intonation, uh, it is thought, from uh, his teacher. Tarsus had his own university, but coming from a strict Pharisaic background, as I say, he, he would then have been, and he know he was, he was sent to Jerusalem to complete his learning, where he sat at the feet of one Gamaliel, a famous teacher, who himself was perhaps in the tradition of, if not actually, the grandson of Hillel, the more gentle of the Hillel Shammai, well-known rabbis at the time. Hillel, who would have died just a couple of years before Saul turned up in Jerusalem, one of the supreme teachers of the age, who died just a couple of years beforehand. Paul certainly also knew, though, classical secular learning. He quotes at least from Menander, Aratus, the, Cret- the Cretan poet Epinendes, and Aeschylus, and so he knew his secular learning. But in Jerusalem, he was trained as a Pharisee. Some think he may have been married, you know. It certainly is possible, because that was, it seems, a requirement soon after this time at least. And the expected norm, for sure, of a Jewish male of his age, it would be very unusual for someone to have been single as a Jewish male then, he could have been a widower. Perhaps uh, even his uh, wife may have deserted him after he became a Christian. We don't know. But despite all this prestigious attainment, says Saul, however, this part of the story shows us that we are to count religious righteousness as loss for the sake of Christ. And so Paul writes to the Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, these well-known words, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, technically blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, we don't know Paul's physical appearance, though tradition holds that he was short and balding. 
He probably had, uh, at this point in his life, a black beard uh, because Jews did not hold to the Roman fashion of shaving. And he probably would have worn the blue fringe robe, an amulet fixed to a turban-like headdress, evidencing to everyone that he was a Pharisee and confident of his status. Like Jesus' description of the tax collector and the Pharisee, Paul here at this point, as Saul, would have been sure that he had God's favor. You remember the prayer? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So was Saul. Religiously righteous, actually unrighteous. He would learn to count all things as loss for the sake of Christ. Second, conversion. Saul's conversion to Paul took place in about A.D. 33, and it's intended to show us the paradigm-shifting power of the risen Christ, that an encounter with the risen Christ changes your world. This story is recorded three times in Acts, Acts 9 and 22 and 26. Saul was present, you see, at the stoning of Stephen, and he gave approval to Stephen's death and then began an officially sponsored campaign to wipe out the New Testament church. Now, we must remember, not all Pharisees were hypocrites. Though Jesus criticized the Pharisees, he also had friendly relationships with other Pharisees, and the zeal for the law that characterized the Pharisees was certainly admirable, but it was intended to lead to Jesus, as it did, as some put their faith in Jesus and others did not. Paul would eventually do so when on the Damascus road he encountered the living Lord Jesus. Now, you need need to understand, I must make clear to you, that this was not a vision like other visions. According to Paul, his claim was he actually saw the risen Jesus. That Jesus, in his resurrection, appeared to me last of all as to one abnormally born. He saw Jesus risen, he says. And uh, so he fulfilled, like the other apostles, the qualifications of being an apostle, even though uh, he was one least of all as to one abnormally born to whom Jesus appeared. The Damascus Road experience came with no recorded previous tortures of personal conscience for Paul, except his record that Jesus said to him, why do you kick against the goads? That is, why are you like an ox or like another farm animal rebelling against the stick being used by me to prompt you in the right direction? Now that suggests that there was some internal wrestling previous to the vision, doesn't it? Which perhaps something Romans chapter 7 illustrates and I'll talk about that when we get to Romans chapter 7 and 2025 or something like that. But other than that, the Damascus Road experience was a blinding light, utterly unexpected. And in that experience is the totality in highly concentrated form of Paul's message. Highly concentrated form, but nonetheless the totality of his message. You see, it immediately told him, that vision of the risen Lord Jesus, it immediately told him that his religious righteousness was not enough, and instead he needed the righteousness of this Christ, the doctrine that he came to call justification by faith. And it immediately told him that those who followed Jesus were in Jesus. 
For Jesus says to him, not why do you persecute them, but why do you persecute me? This, of course, was the idea that Paul expressed in a number of different ways that we call our position in Christ. We are the body of Christ. And it's also remarkable how loving is the voice of Jesus to Paul. Here is one who is persecuting the church, and yet Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you, Paul. He asks him a question, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? And so there's love and mercy and compassion in every shard of light of that Damascus road vision. So it's no surprise, is it, that Paul became the apostle of radical free grace. Because that was the Damascus Road experience. Some have wondered whether Paul was semi-blind for the rest of his life after the blinding light. We are told that his sight was restored, but in Galatians it seems he still had trouble with his eyes. It's possible that there was some residual impact. Again, we don't know. But this experience of the Damascus Road shifted him to a new paradigm for sure. From righteousness by law to righteousness by Christ. From works to grace. He never returned back to works. Now, of course, not everything was said at this one moment. He had much still to learn. And we can trace, for instance, the influence of Stephen's speech. Have you ever asked yourself why in Acts so much time is given to this speech of Stephen? Because as you read through Acts later, you'll find echoes of this speech in Paul's preaching. He was there listening. And he used uh, Stephen's biblical theology to preach the gospel in many a synagogue thereafter. And all this is intended to show us as an exa- show us an example of Christ's unlimited patience that God can save anyone and use anyone that religious righteousness is to be counted as loss for Christ's sake and in particular here that the paradigm shifting power of the risen Christ I hope you can begin to see my friends How important then it is, and how much Paul's life shows us that it is important, humility in our faith. We do not exalt our ministries, our knowledge, our education, our morality, our attainments, As excellent a man as Paul was, he counted all as loss for Jesus' sake. And I hope you can also begin to see how much no one is beyond hope. And by no one, I do not mean in this context, though this is also true, I do not mean the drug addict, though a drug addict is certainly not beyond hope, or the down and out, though they are also not beyond hope either. But in this context, I mean by no one beyond hope, I mean the Pharisee, the educated, and the religiously righteous. There is no stone harder to break than pride. And religious pride is the hardest to break of all. 
But even that can be overcome by the paradigm-shifting power of the risen Christ. Maybe it will for you today. Pharisee. Third, apostle. Apostle. Paul's vast labors as an apostle are in summary designed to show us that the seed that falls to the ground produces much fruit and that suffering as a servant of Christ is the path to fruitfulness. He is told in his conversion that he will need to understand all that he must suffer for Christ's sake. And for instance, Paul only mentions in passing the three shipwrecks he experienced before he was writing in about A.D. 56. Three in passing, you know. One of them when he was adrift on the open sea for a day and a night. And yet, in Antioch, where the followers of Jesus were first called by the half-Greek, half-Latin name Christiani or Christians, Paul found his first home away from home, writing this letter to the Romans, greetings to Rufus, who may have been the son of Simon, who was one of the leaders of Antioch, perhaps the Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander, and Rufus, who carried the cross of Jesus. And Rufus, now in Rome, an outstanding follower of the Lord, he writes, and to his mother, whom I call mother too. And so Antioch as a home base for Paul. From where he and Barnabas would go out to their first, on their first church planting journey in Acts 13 and 14, and as they traveled, there would be no early morning coffee, I'm afraid, no Starbucks. Or tea, tea, uh, which is much better, by the way, um, Tea was not known outside of China at this point, and the Arabs hadn't even discovered coffee, so none of that. But olives and goat's cheese, and if it was cold, perhaps a little weak, mild wine to warm you up. Um, And with them, John Mark, uh, Acts 13, verse 5, uh, called a servant. Uh, A servant was a word used in the Roman world for document handler sometimes. And so perhaps John Mark was there to bring the written sayings of Jesus with him as a reference point for these early missionaries. And the familiar story of Paul's church planning, his use of Roman citizenship, uh, bringing with him maybe a a document known as a diptych, a a document proving his status in prison much later, suffering again for the cause of Christ. They sang hymns of praise to Jesus. Amazingly, you can read that story in Acts 16 verse 25. What I hadn't yet realized until I was studying this in the last week or so, that hymn may well be recorded in our letter to the Philippians, of course. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, they sang. And there was opposition in Corinth, Acts 18, verse 12. It led the proconsul Gallio, brother of Seneca, who had a good influence over Nero and Nero's so-called good years, adjudicating the Christian faith was not to be persecuted by the Roman Empire at the time, to Ephesus where another popular uprising brought Paul before a mob, assembled at the theater, cut from the hillside of Pion, meeting place of the monthly popular assembly, which every adult male might attend, shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, the mob cried. 19,000 gathered, before whom Paul wanted to preach, but the disciples restrained his zeal, and the assembly was dismissed as an illegal gathering by the town clerk, dangers, suffering, Opportunity, fruit. 
So here's the apostolic logic. He writes, a great door for effective ministry is open before me, and there are many who oppose me. In Paul's mind, the two go together. Effectiveness for Christ and opposition because of Christ. So having won the battle for the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church, Paul began to want to express the theological unity of Jew and Gentile with an offering from the churches towards the poor in Jerusalem. And this offering, it appears from his letters, drove him to go to Jerusalem despite the warnings that he would suffer there. Luke may not have recorded the offering in Acts because under Roman law, the Jerusalem temple was allowed to receive money from its adherents and an offering to the Jerusalem church might appear to the ill-informed to be running counter to this legal principle. Luke may well have had that in mind when he wrote Acts thinking about Roman readership. At any rate, Paul risked again his life for Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. By now, one later story suggests Paul was physically bow-legged, a deformity that is characteristic of those who receive frequent beatings. He'd been let down by close colleagues, even Barnabas, he says, uh, even Barnabas. He says in Galatians, was temporarily led astray. So that when Barnabas insists that they take the mark, again in Acts 15, they could not agree. Something had been broken in his trust of Barnabas. But later Paul refers to Barnabas again, at least with real affection, in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 6. To Jerusalem, where he, he, perhaps against his better judgment, agreed to go to the temple to express his deep love for the Jewish people that you can read about in Romans 9 by doing all that it might take to win them for Christ at Pentecost in A.D. 57. And as the story unfolds, the crowd gathers and the Roman authorities intervene to arrest him. He, he amazingly, I think this is an amazing part of the story of Paul, he asks the Roman tribute for permission to speak to the crowd. The Roman tribune says, do you know Greek? And Paul therefore is probably speaking to him in Greek. But then he wins him over by a learned reference to the classical playwright Euripides. He says, oh, I'm from Tarsus, of quotes, of no ordinary city. Can you imagine that? You've got a massive mob trying to kill you. A cohort of Roman, uh, Roman soldiers have grabbed you from them. And then you, you quote from, you know, Shakespeare. Extraordinary man. And then he's given permission and using everything he has, now lost for the sake of Christ. He speaks in Aramaic to his fellow Jews and tells once again the story of his conversion to life as an example of Christ's perfect patience. The seed that falls to the ground produces fruit. Suffering as a servant of Jesus is the path to fruitfulness. The paradigm-shifting power of the risen Jesus. Fourth and finally, ending. Now, we don't know all this story, some of which we do. But together we can see here that being faithful to the end leads to the crown of life. Paul eventually appealed to Caesar 
the right of all citizens of Rome as a final arbiter of justice. And therefore, he begins his voyage to the center of the empire, having appealed to Caesar, to the Supreme Court. And he arrives there in a rather different way than he had no doubt expected when he wrote the letter to the Romans earlier from Corinth. You know, that he expected to go there in jail, in prison. His sea voyage has been traced. Excuse me, I'm just hot. Is that okay? I, you know, just blame it on coming from the wrong country or something like that. His sea voyage has been traced exactly by a yachtsman to find that Luke's account precisely matches the realities of wind and sea and coast. Luke is not making this story up. Once he was there in Rome after yet another shipwreck, he calls the leaders of Israel to him and explains to them the gospel. Our knowledge of Paul's life for certain finishes at this point. If you take the prison letters as written during this time, there are many other insights given to these two years of house arrest in Rome. Because Luke tells us that Paul was convinced that he would stand before Caesar, we may assume that at some point, whether directly or not, he did stand trial at Caesar's court. It is strange, given that Luke does not mention Paul's death, if it took place directly after these uh, two years in A.D. 62, rather than, as most think, after the great fire of Rome, uh, after A.D. 64, when Nero adopted the Christians as a convenient scapegoat for that fire. It's probable, then, that Paul was arrested again after A.D. 66, perhaps with some further intervening missionary work that he had accomplished. Maybe he did get to Spain. We don't know. But at any rate, he became one of the many whose death so impressed the observers at the time. Seneca wrote, In the midst of flame and the rack, I have seen men not only groan, that is little, not only complain, that is little, not only answer back, that too is little, but I have seen them smile and smile with good heart. The Christians. In the catacombs of Rome, there are several portraits of Paul dating from the next century. White beard, bald head. Perhaps in childhood, the painters heard old men describe Paul from their childhood memories. Arrested, perhaps first on the charge of arson as part of the great fire, released. Perhaps re-arrested and charged, as one tradition maintains, by the Senate with treason. Imprisoned, it's possible, with Peter too. Peter nailed to a cross as a public spectacle at Nero's circus, head down at Peter's own request, tradition at least maintains. While Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, was beheaded somewhere less public and less shameful. Ancient tradition has it on the Ostian Way, the place now known as Tre Fontaine. He would have been imprisoned again beforehand overnight. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, he writes to Timothy. Taken out 
bled to the low pillar which left his neck free, stripped to the waist, perhaps beaten again, the sword which replaced the axe in Nero's reign, raised. Romans 8 verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. An example of Christ's unlimited patience on Paul, on me, on all those who believe. The poet John Donne put it like this. Paul was born a man, an apostle, not carved out as the rest in time, but a futile apostle, an apostle poured out and cast in a mold. In other words, it is to teach us this life, as the psalm puts it, that thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections. Can he all as lost for the sake of Christ? Hath won my affections. All as lost for the sake of Christ. Bound my soul fast. Let's pray together. Father God, we bow before you and we ask that we might see in Paul's life an example of Christ's unlimited patience. Father, I pray that if there are those here who feel that uh, because of their good deeds, perhaps they don't need grace, that uh, by the power of the risen Lord Jesus, you would show them who Jesus is, Father, I also pray if there are some here who feel that uh, you, God, could not possibly save them or use them. I pray that by that same power of the risen Lord Jesus, you would also show them who Jesus is. At the power of the cross. We pray this for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.